Thank you. My goodness, if you're, uh, on behalf of my wife Jamie and three little girls in the nursery, we are so grateful for the invitation to join with you in worship here. Uh, the worship ministry at Wendover Hills has a reputation uh, that far sur- sur- uh, surpasses what you've imagined uh, as a passionate community of Christ followers who know how to keep a beat and carry a tune. So. You demonstrated that this morning. Thank you. If you're joining with us for the first time this morning, give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, my name is Jay DePoy, and speaking of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, um, I am a recovering Pharisee, and, and uh, I'm a very clumsy disciple of Jesus. You know, I take three steps forward and two steps back and sometimes find myself quite confused as to where I am on this journey with Jesus. My story is messy, and uh, I will spare you the details, but I will tell you that I grew up quite confused. Um, My dad planted a church when he was 23 years old in West Michigan, and he was fresh out of a Bible college, a movement in the fundamental independent Baptist, King James only. All of the versions were published in hell. I said published in hell, published in hell. Uh, Christianity for us, this, the, Christianity for us is a long list of thou shalt nots. And um, you can imagine why now I'm borderline oppositional defiant disorder with a mild case of like, over-anxiety medication and, and deep therapy now because I'm not sure all the time if God's mad at me. And you know the movement I'm talking about, though? I mean, it was one of these things we're growing up. When I say I was confused, because we grew up hearing about Jesus and love and grace and, you know, the flannel graph Jesus, that one? And, you know, he always had the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the white, Miss, the white bathrobe with the blue Miss America sash. And when, when we saw him on TV, he always had a, blue, had a British accent for some reason, which I found fascinating. Uh, this Jesus, you know, like the Mr. Rogers Jesus that was always stroking the hair of the children and petting sheep. And then... But, Right? But then, like the dominant expression of Christianity that I saw during the week was one of like rock throwing, bigots, finger pointing, legalism. I saw a church split because a deacon's wife showed up to a church softball game wearing a pair of slacks. Church split over this. I mean, this is the kind of Christianity that I grew up in, so you can imagine how confused I was. Uh, there were four of us kids. Jenny was behind me. Janelle, and then baby Jonathan, the four of us grew up, we all began to rebel and become pretty disillusioned with this posture of religion as a whole. We began to rebel in our own creative and artistic ways. Uh, I remember when Jenny, my sister behind me, was 17, she moved out of the house, moved into like a tent or something like that with her boyfriend, and began smoking weed and drinking and just rebelling against church altogether. You can imagine the, in, the impact that it had on our little family and in our tight-knit community. Um, I'll never forget the day she knocked on the door when she was 18 with tears running down her face, and she had an announcement to make. And we sat in the living room, and I sat on the stairway, and my parents sat in the, on the couch as Jenny announced through broken tears and confession and in repentance that she was carrying a baby. You know that moment like when you're expecting to find judgment and you're surprised by grace. It was a moment that forever altered the the course of my immediate family. That following Wednesday evening, the church had this family talk, business meeting. The announcement was made. Jennifer DePoy was pregnant. You know, and it was usually in this form of, dis, you know, concerned brothers and sisters in Christ who would, it was disguised as like a prayer chain. How many of you know the prayer chain? <laughs> we need to be praying. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> but you, you, Pastor DePoy, Jennifer? Yeah, mm, that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's carrying a baby. Now listen, I've got three people on my list. Who can you, we need to get other people involved in this. What other churches can we contact? Do we have a mass email that we can send out? A monthly newsletter. How can we get other Christians who are concerned to pray over Jennifer DePoy? <laughs> yeah, that Wednesday night when the announcement was made, there was kind of a hush that fell over the congregation. And um, like everybody kind of waited to see how they would respond to this outspoken fundamentalist preacher's 
daughter being pregnant. And there was an old man who stood up in the back of the church. He was the, like the mayor of the church, you know, and the old elder, the old bachelor, Ray Erickson, stood up and he braced himself in the back of the pew. One of these guys that when he speaks, you know, everybody listens. And he said, Let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And he sat down, and for that moment, from that moment on, the dominant posture of the Bible Baptist Temple became one of a people who were obsessed with grace. If you have your Bibles, join me in John chapter 8. Um, I have a prophetic announcement this morning, I believe, that God is calling his church to drop the rocks. This morning I want to talk about law. I want to talk about judgment. I want to talk about finger pointing and hushed whispers. I want to talk about guilt. And I want to talk about grace. I want to give you the historical and geographical context of John chapter 8 before we dive in reading um, sometimes, like I, again, I grew up thinking Jesus was a Republican from the Midwest. You know, I had no idea that he was actually Jewish. So the, the past several years, what I've been doing is just diving into the actual hermeneutical understanding of what life was like in first century Palestine. And the more research that I've done, the more homework I've done, the more the words of Jesus become more intoxicating, more compelling, more revolutionary, more magnetic, more beautiful, more authoritative, more holistic, more relevant than they ever were before. And so let me just give you this. And, and by the way, hopefully when you came in the door, you received some kind of bulletin or program. Inside there was also some notes. Um, if you want to follow along, um, Rich is going to, if you want to follow along with some notes, just put your hand in the air and we'll get you some notes. And uh, just keep your hand up and we'll get you some of that. I want to give you, the first thing I want to give you is I want to give you the setting. The setting of John chapter 8. Remember now, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people were growing up. Uh, this, 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 re- this movement of people who had found themselves to be in utter oppression and in bondage to the Roman Empire. And in Roman's empire, in Caesar's palace, was this dominant fist that was uh, generated to anybody who would look cross-eyed at the Roman throne, at Caesar's throne. And the Jewish people found themselves to have been in bondage for hundreds of years, and as Caesar ruled with an iron fist, with military might, the Jewish people were in such bondage and in such captivity that they had one question. What is God saying? Has he forgotten his people? Has he... Has he forgotten about us? We're his chosen nation. What's the deal? In Jesus' day, there was a group of people called Pharisees. They were like this denominational, political part, this group of people. The Pharisees, the Hebrew understanding of Pharisee is literally the separated ones. You know the ones, they're, they're inside the circle of God's love. They're the ones who are like, God loves us. We've got it all figured out. We, we drive around in a minivan with a Jesus fish on the bumper and the what would Jesus do bracelet and the Christian t-shirts. And we've got, we look really good on the outside. But Jesus says, you know, beware of the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees. What does yeast do? It swells up like pride. The Pharisees were obsessed with Jewish law. They were, give them credit, they were obsessed with following God's law, the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, but they were also obsessed with making sure that you followed Torah and that you followed Torah. And if you didn't follow Torah, there were dominant, uh, there, there were these, these uh, judgments that were cast upon you in the form of capital punishment. Those are these big rocks that we have with your name on it. And uh, into that understanding, the setting of this particular text in John chapter 8 was one of if you want to go to that setting, um, the setting is Roman oppression against Jewish liberty. Okay, this is the backdrop. This is the historical and geographical context. Into that scene comes a rabbi 2,000 years ago by the name of Jesus. You might have heard of this guy. He would wander around, and a rabbi was a Jewish teacher of the, of the, of the Hebrew law, of the Torah. And he would give interpretations of the Torah as to how God has called his people to live 
rabbis were like the rock stars of the town. I mean, everybody looked up to the rabbis. They all wanted to respect the rabbis. A rabbi would walk into, he could, on any given uh, Sabbath day, walk into the Jewish synagogue and because of his authority begin to speak. And this is what is happening in John chapter 8. Jesus had ventured into a synagogue and he is now about to give his interpretation of Torah. And watch what happens in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. That morning, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. When a rabbi would sit down, the, the Greek word is anapipto, and it's, it's this idea of uh, in Jewish synagogues, the rabbi would sit in the seat of Moses in the temple and when he would sit down, it was a posture of authority. And everybody would have been leaning in to listen in to see what this rabbi had to say. No microphone, no bullhorn, just open air preaching. Jesus sitting down in the seat of Moses proclaiming how God has called us to live. Then watch what happens all of a sudden. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Can you imagine the scene? Jesus is in the, the middle of preaching a sermon, not unlike what we're doing here. Hand, uh, hundreds of people gathered into the, the synagogue at that point, and all of a sudden the back door opens up, and like Moses parted the Red Sea, there's a, a line down the center, and a handful of professional religious people come dragging this woman by her hair through the crowd. Excuse us, everyone, don't want to cause a scene here or anything, but we've got some, this matter of attention that we've got to draw some attention to. This woman, Rabbi Jesus, Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, according to Torah, Moses' law, the Hebrew scriptures, command us to stone such an offense, capital punishment. Now, what do you say? It sounds like they have a legitimate concern for this, you know, concerns brothers and sisters in the Lord starting the prayer chain over this. It sounds like they have a legitimate concern. They want to know, what, what do you say about this, Jesus? What should we do here? We, we really want to follow Torah here. But the following verse, in verse 6 of John 8, says they were using this as a trap by which they wanted to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. You see, as you understand first century Palestine and you do the homework through extra-biblical sources, you will find out that in the year 30 AD, the Roman Empire issued a decree from Caesar's throne himself. No longer can you pesky Jews inflict capital punishment on your own people based on some violation of some law that we don't recognize anyway. You can't just take matters into your own hands. So, based on Roman authority, they could not do what they believed Torah was telling them to do with this woman anyway. And so Jesus is then presented with a couple of options. The first option Jesus has would be to say, yep, take her out back and kill her. That's how we, do with, that's how we deal with things. And in so doing, the Pharisees would have had a case against Jesus. They would have gone to Caesar's palace, knocked on the door and said, excuse us, Mr. Caesar, have you heard about the rabbi down there who completely is disobeying and disregarding what your throne has to say? He is misleading the Jewish people. He is disobeying this new, new law that had just been passed a few months before. And he's telling people to take out this punishment on this woman. And you notes. The dilemma. The dilemma would have been capital punishment. You have option number one, to disobey Caesar's palace, disobey the empire. But the second option that Jesus had in this particular case would have been to say, uh, no, it's okay. It's, it's, let, let her go. It's all, it's all good. Let her live however you want. No big deal. Sin is no big deal anymore. It doesn't really matter. God's law doesn't really say that. Just let her go. Live however you want. And in so doing, he would have been disregarding God's law. So you've got disobey the empire as one option or disobey God's law over here. And if Jesus had done option two, then the Pharisees have a case against Jesus, could have gone back to the uh, Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to the Zealots and to the Essenes and said, oh, you Jewish people, listen to this. This new rabbi that everybody's gathering to down there, he's a heretic. He doesn't take God's law seriously. He just laughs sin off, says it doesn't matter. 
And consequently, he must be some kind of imposter. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had argued over this particular application of Torah. What do we do with someone who's been caught in the very act of adultery? If you look up the different sources in, uh, in the scriptures, you'll find that one of them is the Jewish Mishnah. In the Jewish Mishnah, you will find thousands of years ago, the rabbis arguing and debating, and they basically landed on this conclusion. Can you go to the slide that says, um, uh, if a man commits adultery, uh, in the case of adulterers, they, the witnesses, must have seen them in the posture of adulterers. Okay, one of the rabbis said this, this in the posture of adulterers. Okay, very graphic. Get the picture in your mind. That's what the Pharisees said, by the way. We caught this woman in the very act adultery they would have based this off of Levitical law back thousands of years ago when God gave Moses the Torah in Leviticus chapter 20 and I'm going to put some of these up on the, on the screen but look at this if a, man, um, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death which raises a fascinating question who's missing in this particular scene Anyone? Where is the man? In this case, they drag her, throw her down, and say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What do you say? This is a dilemma, impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus takes this moment as a teaching opportunity, and Jesus bends down. And he begins to write in the sand. The next verse says, Jesus stoops down and begins to write in the sand. There's all kinds of speculation. What did Jesus write in the sand? What? What could he possibly have written? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I have some ideas, and I've heard all the speculations. I've heard some good theories on what he might have been writing. Uh, my, I have a master's degree in theology. When I was in seminary, my professor said, I wonder if Jesus started fighting fire with fire. If they're professional religious people who have memorized the law, they're so obsessed with the law, I wonder if Jesus started writing out the law. I wonder if Jesus would have written something like this from Exodus chapter 23. Next slide. I wonder if Jesus wrote this in the sand. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. What did Jesus write? I don't know. Maybe he backed up three chapters and went to Exodus chapter 20. And just for, um, just for the sake of, of a, jerry, a J rant, can I just um, read to you the, the, the Ten Commandments? I, I know. I, I know. Some of us... Um, are really like we couldn't even we couldn't even quote the Ten Commandments, let alone live by them. If I were to ask you right now, what are the Ten Commandments? You could probably come up with a couple of them, but living by them is another matter. I wonder if Jesus simply scribbled out the Ten Commandments. Remember these words. Just listen closely and tell me how often, on a daily basis, do we, as Christians, violate these original words of God? God says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why is it that in every American living room all of the furniture revolves around what? Oh, we wouldn't call the television our God, but it dictates how we dress, how we vote, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. It dictates what's important to us. And all of a sudden we find ourselves voting for the next American idol. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, <laughs> you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name I think that has less to do with your language and it has more to do with your 
action. I think it has, I think it has more to do with carrying the name Christian on your back and then living like hell the rest of the week. Crickets, okay. Uh, anytime you guys want, you can say amen. Just for little words of affirmation would be good for the short guy up here. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day, remember that on the seventh day God, God rested. You are not a machine. So on that day, remember that Christ finished the work for you on the cross of Calvary, and we're going to take this day to celebrate the resurrection. Go back to your employer and say, by law, he has no right. He can't hold this against you. You need this day to rest because you are not a machine. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You should not murder, okay? You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony against your neighbor. You should not covet your neighbor's house your neighbor's co- uh, or covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's main servant, his ox or his donkey or his new car in the driveway or his house or the white picket fence. You shall not... See, these, how many of us violate... The, how many of you have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Have you ever told a lie? How many of you have ever murdered anybody? We've all established the fact that you're all a bunch of liars, so how do, we, <laughs> how do we know exactly what you're telling us is to be accurate? Do not, do not lust after your neighbor's wife, but lust for us men, well, just a man can't help it. Okay, we're all guilty of this. But for, for women, it's different. I think it's a little bit different. I think maybe it's covetous to covet to covet that husband over there who says, why can't my husband be more like that? You see the guy who's at the playground playing with his kids and you think to yourself, why can't my husband take time out for our kids? We got lust, we got pride, we've got covet, we've got steal, we've got lied, we've got murder, we've got working on the Sabbath, we've got misusing the Lord's name, living like hell during the week. We've got bowing down to the next American idol. You fill in the blank on how many times we follow and we break these laws. I wonder if Jesus went on to say something like this in this particular case of adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 19, he could have gone to this. If you go to the next slide, the judge must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony, then do to him as he intended to do to the accused. I wonder if Jesus could have simply wrote these words because Jesus in his sovereignty would have understood that chances are this particular woman sitting at his feet in a pile of dust and mascara running and brokenness was probably someone who was a widow or desperate or coerced into a vulnerable situation by a group of professional religious people who really wanted to trap Jesus. And I wonder if Jesus, knowing their intent, I wonder if this group of people would have set this whole scene up and at that precise moment, caught in the very act of adultery, in the position of adulterers, they would have snatched her and dragged her out of that scene and thrown her down. Thereby, Jesus, according to Deuteronomy 19, would have known that they would have been guilty by conspiracy. And they themselves would have been guilty, giving a false report, malicious activity, doing a thorough investigation. Unless you were to think that Jesus doesn't care about law. Grace always raises the bar. Grace always raises the standard of our behavior. Thousands of years after the Torah was given, Jesus triumphantly climbs up on the side of a mountain and gives the kingdom manifesto of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, you know the Beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves. Blessed are those who are all screwed up. Blessed are those who are in some kind of recovery. Blessed are those who recognize that they don't have it all together. Blessed are those who get hung up by hurts and habits. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 7, and he says, Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. Apparently mercy is the dominant expression of heaven toward us. And if this is true, there's a divine connection between mercy and forgiveness. In this verse it says, those who show mercy or have mercy, their lives are overflowing with mercy, God in heaven will show mercy toward you. What then is the alternative to that? If you're someone who doesn't have a merciful response to people, I wouldn't want to be standing before God on that day. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6 when he gives the Lord's Prayer, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth just like it is in heaven. And Jesus goes on today, forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have uh, sinned against us. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus picks up on that rant of forgiveness and he says, for if you do not forgive the people who have sinned against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. That's pretty heavy. I think that deserves a little bit of attention there. A connection between mercy and forgiveness. Unless you think that Jesus dismisses sin in any way, shape, or form, Jesus goes on to say, In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. You think, oh, I've done pretty well there. Never really acted on it, you know, just done some window shopping. You can look, but you can't touch. Just a man, I'm just saying. Jesus says, in Matthew 5, 27, can you go back a slide? Um, Bless, oh, okay, I'll just say it. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, whoever, I think, or is it the next one? It says, bless, um, whoever lusts, yeah, it's the next one, whoever has lust in their heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is basically making a case that the ground is level at the cross and we've all got a bunch of junk in the trunk. (laughs) See, there's a connection. There's a connection about this idea of mercy. You've heard it said, and it was up there for a second, and maybe we'll go back there. Could you go back to grace? The difference between grace and mercy. Grace is to receive what we do not deserve. Mercy is to not receive what we do deserve. We sing about grace. We celebrate grace. I'm so thankful for grace. But I tell you something, I'm desperate for mercy. Because when I stand before God, it is grace, it is for for by grace that I have been saved when I'm knocking on the door of that judge saying, give me mercy. I do not want to receive what I'm supposed to deserve. Because based on God's law, based on Jesus' standard, based on my own sin and my own depravity, I'm a wretch with undeserved salvation. Grace is to receive what we do not deserve and mercy is to not receive what we do deserve. And by Jesus going on in his rant about judgment and finger pointing and legalism and self-righteous bigots, and then he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge. Who do you think you are? For in the same measure that you use to judge others, that measure will be used to judge you in a court of divine law. Who do you think you are? Jesus goes on to say, how dare you call someone out in the carpet and publicly expose them for the sawdust that's in their eye, the the little speck of dust in their eye when you've got a tree growing roots in your own eye and you're so distorted. When you look in the mirror, you think you've got it all together. And as you look out, you can't even tell that you're so broken. And you're so busy yielding these big rocks around ready to launch in the direction of anybody else who's ever sinned against you when in reality you're full of dead men's bones. Do not judge. Who do you think you are? I think Jesus is trying to get people to understand and get us to the place that we all live in a glass house. And those who live in a glass house probably shouldn't be throwing stones around. 
because your whole world will cave in and collapse into a million pieces and before you know it, you've got a mosaic that is being rebuilt out of your life because you started wielding these big old boulders at people who have sinned against you. And in reality, your own sins have been publicly exposed to the laughing audience on the six o'clock news. What would that look like? I'm just going to... What would that would look like if all of our sins were broadcast on the evening news? I believe we'd be walking with spiritual limps. We'd be a little bit less loud, a little bit less proud, a little more humble. And as we sang this morning, desperate to, to meet the Mercy King. We'd all probably be attending Celebrate Recovery in some way. <laughs> I wonder if heaven the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wonder if the feast is basically going to be one big eternal celebration of recovery. Ooh, that's a good place to say amen. amen. We all have skeletons in the closet and some of us live in a haunted house. And the next time the devil reminds you of your past, you can remind him of his future. Another good place to say Amen. John, let's, go, let's finish the story in John chapter 8, okay? Watch this. We've got to finish this. Jesus is writing in the sand. The question is, what did he write? If you understand first century Palestine, there was a group of people. The Supreme Court in the Jewish land was called the Sanhedrin Council. The Sanhedrin Council was comp comprised of the Jewish ruling authorities. They would have been the Pharisees, the religious party, if you will, the professional religious people, and the Sadducees, which were the professional political party. And both of them would have been very well educated, very well respected in the community, and when they came to a resolution in a court of law, they would have written out their verdict for all to see. That's why Jesus bends down in the ground as a posture of authority and begins scribbling in the sand his verdict. What did he write? Back to John 8, look at verse 7. And Jesus says, or as Jesus bends down in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and Jesus said to them, there's that verse, if any of you is without sin, yes, take her out back. And you who is without sin can be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down and continues writing. All kinds of speculation. Again, what did Jesus write? I'm of the humble opinion that Jesus bent down in the sand and started writing some names. Names of those individuals who with white-fisted grips around large rocks were ready to launch in the direction of this woman who had already been with, their, with her themselves. And Jesus in the sovereignty knew their own condition of brokenness. Either they had been with her or been with someone else or they went window shopping at the red light district. Or those who have this secret addiction to internet pornography, but let's not talk about that in church. Starts writing. Those of you who have never sinned, starts writing. Who else is in the room? Oh yeah, you? Okay. <laughs> And as they're reading what he's writing at this, those who heard, or you could read, those who read what Jesus is writing, heard the verdict, began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, which I find interesting because when you've been around a while and you've got a little bit more experience and a little bit better memory, you probably walk with a little bit more of a spiritual limp and you remember that it's was grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Oldest from the youngest drop the rocks and begin to walk away which raises a fascinating question. Who was really on trial? Oh, it was disguised as this woman was the one that was on trial. We have we to interrupt this uh, meeting this morning. We've got to bring this woman and get a verdict on her. What should we do with her? What's the judgment? She's the plaintiff. She's the defendant in this particular case. But verse 6 says it was Jesus was the ones they wanted to trap on the horns of a dilemma. 
But what does our rabbi do in pseudo-judo-kung-fu spirituality? Flips the switch and kicks it right back to him and makes them look in the mirror at their old panties wrapped up tight in a bunch and saying, you professional religious people, look in the mirror at your own sin. Who do you think you are to cast judgment and to throw rocks at this person because the ground is level at the cross? What does our rabbi do? Causes them to look in the mirror and rip the rooted trees out of their own eyes and see their own brokenness and in their depravity cause them to drop the rocks as God is calling his church to drop the rocks and walk away and, and, and live. Leave now your life of sin. I love my rabbi. Brilliant. And Jesus turns to the woman. Can you picture her there? Come with me to first century Palestine. trembling, huddled in a broken mass of salty tears, eyes bloodshot, mascara running down, her hair is a mess, her her dress is torn, crumpled at the foot of Jesus. And Jesus says, "Uh, Woman, where now are your accusers? No one is left. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. John 3.16, by the way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but that through him they may be set free. Neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? Come on, pick yourself up. Go now. And as you go, leave your life of sin. Did you notice the third thing in your notes? The answer? The answer is a divine order of grace and truth. You say, why is that important, Jay? Because when God finally wrapped himself in flesh and came down from heaven to walk a mile in our shoes, the Bible describes him as coming, coming in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, came in flesh, verse 14, and the Word became flesh, full of grace and truth. The divine order picks up in verse 17, and grace and truth were with him. I believe that there's not one word that was inspired from God that is in this text that was not uh, a plan or preordained for us 2,000 years later to remember that God comes in flesh full of grace and truth. The divine order says I'm a person who's obsessed with grace. See, I grew up in a culture that was all about truth, which is fine. But being right became our obsession. Winning arguments and losing friends. So my friends have master's degree in theology, and theology their master's degree is on the track of apologetics. There's a place for that. Giving a defense of the faith. Dare I quote a Calvinist here at a Wesleyan church? John Calvin once said, Someone who feels the need to defend God is as absurd as someone feeling the need to a man trying to defend a lion. God doesn't need you to defend him. Next time you're trapped into a debate at the water cooler at work with your atheist friends who want to argue with you about whether or not you came from a monkey and all this, I mean, your chances are you're not going to get them to intellectually understand the dynamics of what happened at the Garden of Eden. That's not even what this is about. It's about who's smarter. And God really doesn't care. He doesn't care who's smarter. And God doesn't need you to defend him. God needs his people to drop the rocks. Full of grace and truth says, Woman, where are your accusers? There's no one left, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Grace. 
but go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't dismiss, I'm not saying we should dismiss truth at all. Don't compromise truth. Stand for truth. There's absolute truth. The Bible is God's final authority for faith and practice. Don't sugarcoat it and don't compromise truth, but be obsessed with grace. I saw my dad one time get in an argument, win a debate over whether or not speaking in tongues is for today and knew all the scriptures. But uh, he doesn't go golfing with that particular friend anymore. Is that really what Jesus' heart is when he says, his posture at the end, when he says, Father in heaven, make these disciples be one. May your church be one. How many churches are there in Greenville? One. You're either in the body of Christ or not. Full of grace and truth. The dominant posture is grace before truth. And uh, as she walks away, that somewhere, somehow, a price had to be paid for the sin that was committed in this act. We know that Jesus wandered his way to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And despite her sin, he too was once dragged before the ruling council. He too was thrown down, spit at, and mocked on. In a kangaroo court, he too was laughed at, betrayed with some distorted story. He too would have walked a mile in her shoes if you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever been divorced, if you've ever been lonely, if you've ever been stepped on, if you've ever been passed up, if you've ever been looked down on or mocked. He too, the incarnation God in the flesh, walking a mile in our shoes all the way to the cross. They beat him beyond recognition. You couldn't even tell who he was. He was so disfigured. They shoved a spear through his side to make sure that he was dead. See, a price had to be paid for her sin. But after three days, he stepped away from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell forever, and carved a six-lane highway for us to glory, recognizing that one day when we stand before God in a court of law, their Bible says that if any of us recognizes our sin, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And there also, if you go to the next slide, there is an atonement for us if anyone does sin we have one who speaks to the father in our defense Jesus Christ the righteous one is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but for the sins of the whole world on that day that's the message of the gospel I came this morning to preach the gospel they asked me well what songs do you want to sing we want to create the set list for this coming Sunday I said if you if you want to sing some songs about Jesus, you'll probably be pretty close to what I want to talk about. I think we'll be just fine. Maybe Grace, um, the Cross, Lead Me to the Cross. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the gospel right there. <clears throat> a few, uh, a couple of years ago, we enrolled our daughter, Mariah, into preschool terrifying traumatic time for a father of three daughters and uh, you know this moment where she gets on this bus and winds through the mountains of Asheville to go to school and you're like oh come back what's going to happen to her she came home from school like not too long ago a couple weeks ago Mariah how was school today dad it's tough I said what's what's so tough about it honey what could possibly be so tough she said Alex what about Alex? He shows me his pretzel. He shows you what? Yeah, Dad. He shows me his pretzel. And he dips it in milk. And then he eats it. He's bad, Dad. He's bad. He dips his what? Where? His pretzel in milk. You say, what does that got to do with the sermon? Nothing. I just thought it was a cute story. (laughs) Every head bowed, every eye closed. (laughs) On that note, maybe you've been dipping your pretzel in milk.
Better stop. Okay, so um, the first day of preschool, all the parents show up at, at, at preschool at the little the, the, the room there. And Mariah had a little backpack, you know, and, and she was, the backpack was, like, bigger than her. And let's be honest, she was pretty much doomed since birth. If you've ever seen the massive height of me and my wife? My wife actually makes me look tall, this 4'11 Puerto Rican who makes me look tall, and so Mariah's pretty much going to be that size forever. And as Mariah went... <laughs> <laughs> went to her first day of school. It's that moment where all the parents go and they watch over the room and they're all standing against the room to, to kind of let their kids kind of ease into this idea of school. You know, and us, we're, all, the do, all, the parent, all the fathers are like against the wall just kind of checking each other out. Really like sizing each other up. I could take him. Take him too. I already took that dude. What's up? Remember this? Remember the thunder and the lightning and you got caught in the storm? Remember that? I'm making all that up, most of it. <laughs> and uh, I noticed though Mariah wandered her way over to, the, um, to this easel and there were some finger paints and all these kids could kind of interact and do whatever they wanted and Mariah made her way over to the easel and she kind of just sat down for a moment and she had these paints and got the paint all over her fingers and she looked at this easel blank canvas and you could see her mind working and she didn't know where to begin and so I wandered over with her and pulled up a chair and there was this moment that we both looked at the easel and were like I thought to myself Mariah this is a new chapter of your life your life is about to begin now and you have a blank canvas you have a clean slate. What do you want to paint? You be the artist. God has given you, out of his sovereignty, he has given us free will to decide what is it that you want to paint with your life. And my prayer for her is that she will stay within the lines, but that she will use all of her God-given creative potential to make the right choices to do the right thing, to make something beautiful of her life. My prayer for her is that even if she goes outside the lines and makes a mosaic a mess, and it doesn't make any sense what she's doing. The other day she brought home something that she had painted for me. It's beautiful. What is it? <laughs> it's you, Daddy. <laughs> That's how you see me, really. Okay. I hope that one day Mariah, Mariah Grace, and Ambria Faith, and Ashlyn Hope will grow up in a Christian community that is obsessed with grace, a community that makes room for her at the table of communion if they should ever make terrible self-destructive choices. I hope that she will know the Jesus that says, I don't condemn you, that if upon your confession and in your brokenness, in your repentance, let's take this to the cross where the ground is level. My prayer for Mariah, my prayer for you, my brothers and sisters, my friends and family here at Wendover Hills is that you will know this Jesus. See, religion says it like this. Religion has it backwards. Religion says, check off this list of things to do. Check off these rituals. Do this, 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 and this, and then you will not be condemned. Grace says, you're not condemned. And as a result, check off this list of things, ways in which you can live out of your expression of freedom in thanksgiving, a life of thanks living in response to the grace that has been demonstrated. There are two groups of people here in closing. One group, if you got really honest, there's a group of people who are, whether you subconsciously admit it or not, you're carrying around these rocks with you in your back pocket. And every time someone slips up, anytime someone does something wrong, anytime someone looks at you cross-eyed, you're ready to whip out these rocks and slam it into the skull, metaphorically speaking, of course, because you don't have the courage to do it in real life, but in your mind, you're casting judgment on those who have sinned against you. 
Then there's another group of people who are, who are trembling at the foot of Jesus, terrified that at any minute they're going to crash into your house and drag you by the hair and throw you before the judge and the jury and your sins will be exposed on the 6 o'clock news. And God is calling both groups to repent. With your eyes closed and with your heads bowed, I wonder, I wonder if there's someone here this morning who said, that's me. I'm the one who is trembling. Trembling before the cross in need of grace in need of a Savior. I'm the one who is terrified that my sins will be publicly exposed. And even in this safe place of a church community, you wouldn't want to raise your hand because what might others think? And you don't want to stand up or come down to the altar. So let me just make it easier for you. In the quietness of your own heart, would you in this silence, in this moment, cry out, to the mercy king and say, Jesus, I believe that by the blood shed for me on the cross of Calvary, the debt was paid, paid in full. And my only response is to live a life of radical grace. Maybe you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe it's time for you to come to that place and just say, Jesus, here I am. I confess my sins, I'm broken. And in my repentance, I cling to the cross as my only hope. As part of the other group, maybe if you were really honest, you're more like the Pharisee in the story. You're really self-righteous. You're thinking right now, oh, so-and-so need to hear this sermon. <laughs> when in reality, it's for you. And God is calling you to drop the rocks. God, this is your church. Have your will and have your way. We ask for a revival, an inrush of your spirit into a body that threatens to decompose. We ask for the blood of Jesus to make atonement for all of our sins and that our response is one of grace, overwhelming grace, grace like rain, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.